Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning, everyone. Um, good to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I've got a message that maybe doesn't quite look sound like a normal Christmas message, but it does start with Mary. So that's our segue. Um, I want to ask you this question first, though. What are your plans for next year? Have you got plans? Plans for 2024? Plans to move house? Plans to stay in your house? Plans to move jobs? Plans to stay in your job? Plans to uh, start a family? Plans to move? plans to stay. What, what are they? You, maybe you've made some clearish plans for 2024. I'm going to ask you this morning to cancel your plans at least for the next half an hour because I'm going to be speaking about how God disrupts our plans and how we submit our plans to God for the year ahead for the rest of our lives. How I got to this was I was thinking, what should I speak about on Christmas Eve? Well, what is Christmas Eve? Christmas Eve is symbolically the night before Jesus was born. And so there would have been at least one person thinking about their plans and how their plans had been disrupted by God's Mary after her very frantic, you can imagine, and stressful experience of needing to move from Nazareth down to Bethlehem to get to find somewhere to maybe have a child and all of this frantic and stressful situation, now you can, un- you can imagine a, a moment of calm, a moment of peace in as much as possible, perhaps at the beginning of labor, thinking about how God had disrupted her plans. But the funny thing is, how much had God disrupted her plans? She was a woman who was engaged to be married and quite likely was planning to start a family in the next year. And so in some way, God hadn't disrupted her plans at all. And yet... He had broken in in quite a remarkable way to her story. So I was thinking about Mary and how God had disrupted potentially her plans, her grand designs for her life. And then with the help of the Church of England lectionary, I connected this with another story about a man many hundreds of years before who also had his plans dramatically disrupted by God. And in this case, he did end up living quite a different life to the one he had expected because he had grand designs and God told him to not go ahead with those plans. So what I'm opening up today for everyone in this room is the possibility that God may disrupt your plans today and they remain exactly the same as you initially thought or God disrupts your plans today and next year looks radically different to what you expected. That's nice. (laughs) So let's read from 2 Samuel 7. And uh, 
Are you guys all right to follow along? So the first, there we go. After the king, and this is David, King David, had settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Just look at that moment for a second. In the preceding chapters of 2 Samuel, there has been frantic action. Battles, enthronements, and disruptions. King David coming to the throne, winning fights and battles with God's power. And now there is a moment of peace and calm, a little bit like Mary many hundreds of years later. Lots of frantic attention and action and suddenly a moment of peace and calm to reflect, to think. And the thought that David has is a completely logical thought. See, what would the neighboring nations do? Once they had established their kingdoms, they would erect and build a temple to the God of their nation or their kingdom. It was essentially a sign to dedicate their nation to that God who had helped them to win those victories. So this was a perfectly reasonable thing to do. It was what all the other nations' kings would do. Once they had established their position, they would build a temple for their gods to dedicate the city to their god. It was perfectly logical. It seemed right not only to David, the man after God's own heart, but also the prophet Nathan. It seemed like the right thing to do, to build a temple to God. It was a perfectly reasonable plan. If anything, it was a very reverent plan. They wanted to honor God, didn't they? And then the story goes on. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? The question that commentators or people who want to discuss this, the question that gets asked is, was David being presumptuous or not? Thinking that he had the right idea. This is the debate. And you could argue it both ways. Was he being presumptuous and should we be scared of making our own plans because like I said this plan seemed rational seemed reverent it seemed to make sense it was very reasonable should we be afraid of making our own plans well I think we should at least learn to hesitate we shouldn't necessarily trust our instincts We don't necessarily just go with what seems obvious. That doesn't necessarily coincide with what God's plan is. And 
just flip the scenario around for a second. Okay, so David goes ahead with this. David decides, I am going to build the temple of God like all the other nations so that I can make sure that our nation is dedicated to God. So David gets all of the materials together and God never intervenes. Let's imagine the scenario differently. God doesn't intervene. David just builds the temple and he builds a large temple, a most glorious structure. And then they wait as a nation for God to come. Now flip the scene to heaven, where one angel awkwardly goes and knocks on the door of the throne room, opens it, and goes up to God and says, um, I, I don't know if you know, King David has just made you a house. Now, I, I know heaven is a lovely place to live, and I, I realize that you've got all creation under your feet right now, but... He's made you a house to live in. So I, I think it would probably be the right thing to go down and now go and, go and live in their house just for a bit to make them feel better, wouldn't? Now, I'm mocking that scenario, but that is actually what all the other nations did. The Bible's full of these sort of comical critiques of the other gods of the other nations where the other nations worship gods that they created, and these gods relied on the human beings to keep them alive. There's these scenes where Isaiah mocks the fact that um, the, the people of one nation will chop down a tree, and they will turn half of that tree into a shrine to a god, and the other half of the tree will be used as firewood to cook their food. And, and the mockery is, oh, you're worshipping a God inside a tree that you had to cut down and then you had to burn, uh, you had to carve it into the right shape. And the big debate in the Old Testament is really the nations worship these false gods and we worship the living God. If David had just gone ahead and built this temple and then sort of enticed God down as if he was a bird in a tree that he needs to come now, down into their temple... What kind of a God are they worshipping as Israel? God's response is almost comical. He says at one point in, a, in the Psalms, he says, if I were hungry, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the whole world is mine and all that is in it. I'm fine, thanks. I don't need your help. I don't need your sustenance. God doesn't need us to keep him alive. All of the other nations, their gods relied on the people keeping worshipping them. If the people stop worshipping, the gods disappear. And that is the sort of accusation that people throw at the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible just laughs at the suggestion, look, I never needed people. I'm fully, wholly self-reliant from all of eternity. I do not need people. I don't need their worship. I don't need them to sustain me. God is fully self-existent. He lives in and of himself. He doesn't require us. He didn't need David to make him a nice house so that he could get out of that windy heaven. No, he's fine. And the story carries on. God continues and says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands." But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Just to summarize maybe what's been said there, God is saying, I promised that I would give you rest, and I have not finished yet. This is the gracious God. Look at the amount of attention that he has given to his people. I've promised you these things, and I will continue to make them fully fulfilled. I think there was a danger in David's mind. What next after, well, I've beaten, I, I've, I've won all of these wars, I've been enthroned as king, and now I'm going to make the decision to build the temple, and now I've built the temple, and then what? Where do we go from here? We just hold on to the thing and hope it never gets rusty or hope the bricks never fall apart. We just try and preserve. God reveals a much bigger plan that has to supersede David in order to carry on. And you notice the words of forever, forever, kingdom forever, established forever. But God is also just saying, look, you don't need to repay me or do me a favor or give me a break. I'm okay. So then Nathan reported to David all of the words of this entire revelation. And then King David flies off the hook, gets annoyed, gets angry. This is what the other kings of the nation of Israel, sadly, as time goes on, this is what many other rulers have done. When their plans have been changed, many people flip out, they get angry, they persecute the prophets. But we can learn from David, he went in and sat before the Lord. Even in those days, even the priests weren't allowed to sit before the Lord. This is the sign of a friend and a co-ruler with God sitting before the Lord. And he says, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? 
and as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you. As we have heard with our own ears, and who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt." You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you have promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight." Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Just, if you need a lesson in prayer, there's one. God has promised this to me. Through faith, I trust it. That gives me boldness. I now pray the promise back to God. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Do you notice the two titles in this? There's servant, i.e. David, and there is sovereign Lord, David has just felt the power of the providence of God like a punch from Mike Tyson or Anthony Joshua. The scale of God's control over all situations, over every circumstance, over the plans of this world and all creation suddenly hit David like a punch to the gut. Because actually if you track this Old Testament passage, if you track this prayer, you discover that all of the spotlights from the rest of scripture are shining on this one moment. This is referred to by many as the mountaintop moment of the Old Testament. This is where all of the spotlights, including the promises in the Garden of Eden, that God would raise up a seed planted in a new land, to Abraham that God would give a place to call home and he would bless their people and give them a great name. Then Moses, my daughter didn't like my preaching. And then Moses called and the nation called a beloved son and that is channeled to this moment as well. And then the promises to Joshua that God would give them Sabbath rest when they enter the land. All of that is channeled into this prayer as well. The whole plan of God that started at the beginning of the Bible, all of the spotlights are shining on this promise and this moment. And you can just feel David swimming, his head swimming in the power and the providence of God. Providence essentially means God being in charge for a purpose. 
I'll read you a couple of verses from David's Psalms, but also Solomon, his son's Proverbs. The steps of a man are ordered by the Lord who takes delight in his journey. God loves the journey you're on. He loves it, delights over it. But he orders the steps. The plans of the heart belong to a man, but the reply of the tongue is from the Lord. There is always space for God to say yes or no. Maybe left, right, forward, back. Many plans are in man's heart, but the purpose of the Lord will prevail. No matter how hard we try, the purpose of the Lord will prevail. A man's steps are from the Lord, so how can anyone understand his own way? I would encourage us all, stepping into 2024, do it with humility, knowing that a man's steps are from God. Therefore, how can anyone understand (laughs) the way you're going? The point here is God's plan is bigger than ours and cannot be stopped. Uh, Our friends, um, who some of you know, but I'm not going to mention their names, booked their honeymoon many years ago, and they booked to go to Granada in South America. And um, they were surprised at how cheap the tickets were, but they get on the plane, and they arrive in Spain. Granada, Spain. (laughs) See, no matter how much you think you're going somewhere, if the pilot has different plans, you have to submit to the pilot's plan in the end, don't you? No matter what our view of where everything is going, surely it's going to help to know where the pilot is taking everything. The lesson I'd love us to just take away is before asking the question, what is God's plan for my life? You've got to know the answer to the question, what is God's plan? Do you know what God's plan is for all things, which includes you? I've really enjoyed a moment of confession. John Piper wrote a brilliant, very long book called Providence. I skipped to the final chapter because I knew that was where the conclusion would be. God's plan to establish a new creation dedicated to his son, Jesus, where everything will see dimensions of the glory of God like never before. The heavens will be glad, the sun and moon shining stars will praise the Lord, the earth will rejoice, the seas will roar with praise, the rivers will clap their hands, the hills will sing for joy, the fields will exult and everything in it, the trees of the forest will chant their praise, the desert will blossom like the crocus, and the created world will be liberated and perfected, and the experience of God's people will be overwhelmingly joyful and full of love and praise. That's God's big plan, a new creation that awaits us, that God is taking everything to that consummation, the final glorification when everyone sees and recognizes Jesus for who he truly is. Not simply the babe in the manger, but also the one who died on the cross, rose again, and is now seated at the right hand of God. The one to whom all things belong and all glory should be pointed in his direction. That's God's plan. The tragedy is, or the complexity, I suppose, is that it is possible in God's sovereignty for us to hijack the plane 
I've just got into uh, Apple TV, and there's program Hi Hijack by Idris Elba. Um, so I might make references to this for a few weeks. But it is possible for us to hijack in as much as we are capable of hijacking God's plans, to hijack the plane which will affect us, our life, and the lives of others. I'll give you an example of what David might have done. He gets this correction from Nathan, from God, and God says, no, David, this is not for you to do. You are meant to collect the resources so that your son eventually will build the temple. And David could have hijacked that plane and said, no, I don't want to be known as the king who almost made the temple. I want to be known as the king who did build the temple, like all the other kings around me. I think there was a moment for many hundreds of years later, there's a man called Saul. Saul was a Jew. He was one of the Pharisees. He was up and coming in the world of Phariseeism. This was the elite class, the religious leading class in Jerusalem. He would have been the top of his field. But God interrupted his plans. Jesus broke in and challenged his way of doing things. But Saul, in that moment, could have decided, no, I want to become the Pharisee of Pharisees. I am on the best trajectory, the greatest career path I could imagine. And I will get all sorts of honor and glory if I go down this path. Whereas joining this ramshackle community called Christians doesn't look very enticing. He could have gone on his own path and hijacked the plane. And yet, thank goodness, David and Saul both decide to submit to the plans of God. And that is where their greatness is really found. Your greatness will not come through you succeeding and achieving your plans. Not in the, in the sort of the quota of heaven, not in the kingdom of heaven. That is not how it's measured, but actually it's how you've submitted to the plans of God. So that's God's big plan. It was bigger, bigger, much bigger than David, and he realizes that, that God's plan is bigger than the biggest king on earth at the time. And yet what we discover in the Christmas story is God's plan is also smaller than one of the smallest women in the nation. Because now zoom forward from David, who was told that one of his descendants would be the king who established the kingdom forever. Now that promise has essentially been, it's not forgotten about, but there's been so many hundreds of years in Israel's history where there has been no Davidic, Davidic king on the throne. After the exile and then the people returned from exile, one of David's descendants was never the king in Israel. But there is this unusual moment where all of, potentially, the descendants of David in the nation of Israel, many hundreds of years later, descend on Bethlehem, because that's where he was from. And there was a census going on where everyone, and you can imagine by this time, yeah, within, there's, 
King Solomon, but then King Solomon has children with many wives. And you can imagine the descendants of David would be extremely numerous. Lots of people would be in the line of David. And they're all around there in Bethlehem. And it's almost like the scene when Samuel is choosing who will be the king of the, of the nation. And he gets all of the brothers lined up. And he's choosing between them. And the one he chooses to be the king, which is King David, is the least likely one who's stuck away in a corner somewhere, in a field. And in a very similar way, we have potentially all of the descendants of David in Bethlehem, all at the same time, and God chooses one of them to be the parents, to be the ones who raise up his son, and they're there stuck away at the bottom of some house with the animals, nowhere of, of, of any glory whatsoever, and God is establishing his plan through this woman, Mary. The woman who I imagine felt, well, people like me never win the lottery. Nothing remarkable ever happens to people like me. Surely if God were to choose one of, his, one of David's descendants, it would be one who's got a few more connections to the current throne, is a bit more likely to be able to get on the throne. Not Mary. And then the angel knocks on her door and disrupts all of her plans and says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Suddenly, these roving spotlights that have been going across Israel for hundreds of years, suddenly land right on that woman and say, all of the promises given to David back then are now going to be fulfilled in you. And then the question remains, how on earth do you raise a Messiah? If you're a mother, how on earth, like it's hard enough being a mum in general and knowing how to parent, but if now you've found out this little child needs to be the Messiah who eventually gets on the throne, how on earth do you parent that child? Because the remarkable thing is, God doesn't leave the angels to help out with the childcare. And he doesn't give Mary an extra manuscript, a little book to tell her exactly how to do things, which school to send him to, what to read to him, how to teach him, what to do, all of that. Actually, the remarkable thing is that Mary raises the Messiah just like she would have raised any other child. And I think this is quite powerful for us because mundane things in the kingdom of God can be quite monumental. For the majority of the world, the people who've honored God and worshiped him and pleased him have spent most of their lives washing clothes, cooking, perhaps for the whole day, which some of you will know that experience tomorrow, working on a farm, or in a workshop, that would have been the majority of Christian lives. And that was good. That was God's plan for those people. 
and they did it according to his will, and they did it to glorify him. And one woman raised their child in such a way that he was the Messiah of Israel, just by being a normal mum devoted to God. Please don't mistake modern, middle-class, midlife crises as the same thing as a call from God. Midlife crises where you just pack everything up and you want to move away. You want to escape the mundane. You want to get rid of all of the shackles of this life and set off. I know too many people who've abandoned their families and set off around the world to discover themselves in some sort of great call on their lives. That's a midlife crisis, but it's not a plan from God. The urge to give it all up is selfish ambition. What really stands out to me about Mary is her clear love of Scripture. This would have been a woman who wouldn't have read the Bible on her own daily because she didn't have one. But she was so dedicated to the Word of God that she would have ensured that she was around people who knew Scripture. She would have learned it from the synagogues. She would have immersed herself, not just so that she could repeat Scripture verses like this to try and prove that she was doing the right thing. But actually, Scripture, the Word of God, so immersed her, she was so immersed in it, that she made decisions just naturally by the Word of God. It just came out of her. I'd love to encourage us into that next year, where we're not just about, oh, you need to read your Bible every day because that's what good Christians do. Or, oh, you can quote a few verses and that justifies every decision you're making. No, let's be immersed in the Word of God so that we can work out the nuances and the differences. And sometimes it's the right thing, sometimes it's not. Sometimes there's wisdom in that, sometimes there's not. And you can fully immerse yourself and understand the promises of God in your life. But this does require a lot of effort. I imagine Mary put a lot of effort into learning scripture. God doesn't give us each a five-year or even a one-year plan. Instead, he gives us a call for patient spiritual discernment and growth as a community together as we steadily mature and desire more to see God's glory manifest in the world that we're in. And then we gain wisdom that comes from reading and rereading scripture and having conversations about it together. I am not denying charismatic experiences like having an angel knock on your bedroom door. However, I am saying it's maturity in the word of God that allows Mary to discern whether this was just a lot of cheese that she'd eaten, whether this was something demonic or whether it was actually the work of God. So by God's word with his empowering spirit in his community, that will be sufficient for us to walk into God's plans for the next year ahead. And we can glorify God together. Now, you canceled your plans. You can, re, you, you can relaunch your plans again if you want. I'm going to invite us to take communion. In 2 Samuel seven, there are three things that cannot stop God from keeping his promises. Number one is time. Number two is our sin. Number three is death. Each one of those pales into insignificance when God continues on his plan. When Jesus goes to the cross, well, first, time seemed to be the issue. 
God's people had been waiting forever for him to fulfill his promises. And then he came. Then it seemed to be people's sin. God's people, his disciples, kept on holding him back. Everybody sinned. Jesus went everywhere and found that every human being, even the most upstanding, had sin. That doesn't stop him. And then he's strung up on a cross and killed. And even that didn't stop him because he rose again into new life to begin this new creation that we can enter into by faith. And he launched this incredible thing called the church. And we now can come before him taking communion. And I just love you to consider two different things. For all of your grand designs for next year, please don't forget God's grander design. If your plans align with that, superb. If not, change them. Some people might need to submit their lives to God. That's the first thing. Some people might need to submit their plans to God. But all of us can come before God now if we've put faith in him and take communion. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.